unbelievable. My, oh my, what a week it has been for me. And I mean that in a good way, but it has been quite a week. And I want to fill you in on some of the things that I was privileged to be a part of this week and, and what it means for the people of God and for our country. But it has been quite a week already, and it's not over yet. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and you are listening to Faith Is, where we stretch each other in God's direction, where we remind each other that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And you know and I know that we use faith in a lot of ways. That's not the only way we use the word faith. But it's a good beginning. And I'm convinced that when we help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, our lives will be better and we will be more faithful in trusting God and following God, responding to God's instructions and expectations. Well, this has been quite a week, and I want to get to that in a minute because I was privileged to go and be a part of an event and take a trip earlier in the week. And I'm really just still amazed at what happened and what I was invited to be a part of. But we want to start with the season of Advent. We've been counting the Sundays. We've had Sunday one of Advent, first Sunday of Advent, when we talked about prophecy and hope. And we reminded ourselves that the prophets foretold the coming of Messiah. And that gives us a future and a hope. And now Messiah has come and we still have the benefits of what Jesus said. And the prophets tell us that one day he will return again. And so we have prophecy and hope that continues to inform our lives. And second Sunday of Advent, we had Bethlehem and peace. Bethlehem is often thought of as a peaceful place because of the way we frame the town in our popular Christmas carols. And it's a good visual reminder of Bethlehem wasn't always a peaceful place. We know that. But it reminds us that, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And there's a peacefulness to that idea. And and God not only came and comes to give us hope, but he came and comes to give us peace. Peace in the midst of anxiety, and we live in an anxious age. And I want to just encourage you to to allow the peace of Christ to be your gift from God these, these days during this season of Advent. I know people think of this time as a busy time and stressful time. Certainly they don't tend to think of it as peaceful, but but would you receive the gift of God, the peace of Christ, and put away all of that other stuff during these days? What a great gift that is, the peace. Christ. And now we're at the third week of Advent. In our church, we use the Advent candles to light them each week. And so this week we will light candle three. And candle three reminds us of shepherds and joy. Well, the shepherds heard the angel message and they went off with joy to seek the baby the angels talked about, to seek the Messiah. And so we remind ourselves of shepherds and joy. We sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain, to celebrate the shepherds and their joy. And I want to give you an idea about joy that helps me a lot. You know, sometimes we think that, well, if circumstances aren't a certain way or if times are tough, how can we be joyful? 
Maybe we've had some kind of a loss in our life or a disappointment of one kind or another. And during this season, we can see everybody else with a smile on their face and we think, well, I'm the only one that's had a disappointment or a loss or some reason for sadness. And here everybody else is joyful. And that just makes us less joyful because we think, how come we're left out? Well, you're not left out. In fact, a lot of the joy we see around us is joy that people, that people exhibit in spite of. And I like what Karl Barth said. It, it has helped me a great deal. He says that, that joy is a defiant nevertheless. And I thought that was so insightful. Joy doesn't depend on me getting what I want or having a perfect life or anything else that you might think of. It doesn't depend on getting the Christmas present I want. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. It says to all of those circumstances, nevertheless, there is a God in heaven. I trust him. I'm developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And nevertheless, no matter what's out there, nevertheless, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to rejoice. And I think we can do that, don't you? Yes, we can. So make your joy a defiant Nevertheless, defy those circumstances, defy that temptation to be sad, that temptation to feel sorry for yourself. Of course, none of you feel that way, right? Because you listen to this program. But in case you have that temptation to feel sorry for yourself, remember, joy is a defiant nevertheless. There is a God I trust, and I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to be joyful no matter what. Joy is a defiant nevertheless, and we can use that, that idea these days because there's plenty of things you can point at that make us concerned and a little bit anxious, maybe even more than that because we wonder where are things going. But joy is a defiant nevertheless because God is still on the throne. Jesus will come back again, and one day, and that's, see, that's part of the anticipation of Advent. One day, he will make all the wrongs right. Joy, a defiant, nevertheless. Well, I guess I could talk too much about that. And I don't want to get stuck on that, but I want to emphasize that enough so we get it, don't you think? Sure, I think that's right. Well, we want to turn now to one of the scriptures that we'll be reading in our church service this weekend. And that I want to call your attention to because it really helps us think about this idea, partly of joy, but also even more of the coming of Jesus. And I suppose you could argue, and I would argue, that when we think about the coming of Jesus, either the first time or, as we anticipate, the second time, there needs to be joy related to that. Because, wow, when he comes, yes, when he comes. And and that's what's reflected in Isaiah chapter 35. And I want to read that to you from the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. And I want you to kind of let this soak in. And we'll talk about this a little bit so that we can get a a good grasp of it. And uh, then I want to tell you, I really do want to tell you about this experience I had earlier this week. It's, It's almost difficult for me to describe, but I'll do my best. So Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. 
like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and shouting. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, of, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wow, that's a terrific, a terrific chapter from the book of Isaiah. It's, it's a... It's a description, a vision, a picture, a, a a picture from words that we're supposed to use our imagination and grasp what he's talking about. Now, you're familiar that Isaiah was a prophet. A prophet was a significant figure in Bible times, particularly we read about the prophets in the Old Testament and some in the New, but we think about the prophets usually from the Old Testament. And Isaiah was one of the major prophets. That doesn't mean there were other minor prophets. We do classify major and minor prophets, but that's not because of importance. That's just because of the quantity of their writings we have. The major prophets' books tend to be longer than the minor prophets, but they're not less important. But Isaiah was a prophet, and he gives us this chapter, Isaiah chapter 35. Now, one of the things that, that I'm trying to make an effort at our church, and I think we'll do that here as well, is to focus our attention even more on the Bible and remind ourselves that the Bible matters. At our church, this is the year of the Bible. Our year, our new year at church, starts on the first Sunday of Advent, and this is the year of the Bible. And so I was thinking, maybe as we look at this particular passage in Isaiah, we should talk about that in a way that that maybe I need to be careful not to assume some things that, that you know already, or, or assume that you understand already. Maybe I should make plain a few things. And, and it's not really complicated, some of these things, but as we approach the Bible, sometimes we think, well, it's too hard for me to understand. I can't, can't grasp it, or I can't understand it, or it's confusing. And I get that. There are places that, that are difficult for all of us. There are confusing places sometimes, and there are dense places where you think, what in the world are they talking about? But remember, when you approach the Bible, this is what I do, even when I struggle to understand. I always approach the Bible with the idea that God wants me to understand what's there. And so I approach it with the confidence that I can and will get what God wants me to know from that passage. 
I never assume that the Bible is going to answer every question that I have. I have far too many questions for that. But I do know that the Bible will give me what I need for life today and for eternal life tomorrow. So that's a mindset idea. So as you come to the Bible, approach the Bible with the idea that, hey, God wants me to understand this. I may not be well-equipped yet to get all of it. You may need to do some study and some learning. That's normal. That's true in anything. If you were trying to study veterinary medicine, you'd have to start somewhere. You wouldn't understand it till you understood it. So don't treat the Bible any different than anything else. Let's just approach it with confidence that God will help us. Let's pray that God will give us insight. So that's, that's the first thing that I want to remind us. When we, when we have an emphasis on the Bible, we need to help each other realize that that it's not meant to be a hidden message or taken from us. Nobody is conspiring to hide it from us, at least not in these days anyway. But we can look at the text. We are so privileged to have it, and we can know what God wants to say to us. So the first thing that, that I noticed right off the bat, and that I think is very helpful for us to notice when we approach a Bible passage, is that while Isaiah is well known as a book of prophecy, this particular section is poetry. And if we're going to understand what God has for us, we need to understand the type of literature the Bible is. And here it's poetry. So what that means is that this is meant to appeal to our imagination in the way a poem does. It's no different than any other poem you might read. It's meant to to fire your imagination, to spark some new thoughts or new ideas, and to literally help us see before our eyes in in our imagination or through the eyes of our imagination what God is saying to us here. So it's not so much literal as it is imaginative. Now, that, some people want to say, hold on now, what do you mean I think the Bible is the literal word of God? Okay, how you use that word really matters. And I'm not trying to undermine that idea. There's a lot of controversy about that and a lot we can talk about with that. But I think what we're trying to do here is understand the Bible literately. So if it's poetry, and if by nature of its literature it appeals to our imagination, then we should accept God's message to us as appealing to our imagination. Now, that's not the same as license to think any old thought you want to think. It's not the same as saying, well, I can use my imagination here in any old way I want to. No, 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 that's not it. We still want to be rooted in the text, but we want to let the text come alive in our imagination. And there are things that we run across occasionally that help us with that. For example, in verse, uh, is it one or two? Let me check here. In verse one, it identifies a crocus blooming. Well, in the original language, there's some uncertainty about what type of flower that is really referring to. But that's not so important as it is that here we're talking about blossoms bursting into bloom. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly. So don't get tied up in its one flower. It might be a field full of wildflowers, but it's blossoming, it's springing into bloom. That's the imagination that, that God wants us to have. He's talking about the, the wilderness is being transformed. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. It talks about them rejoicing. It talks about how there will be abundant water. Well, in the, that part of the world, in the, the land of God's people, it was often dry and difficult, and water was important. They had to have water to survive. And so now God is painting a picture of a place with, with plenty of water. 
He's not only talking about a transformed desert here that will bloom, but then he, in verse 3, starts talking about transformed people. Weak hands strengthened. Feeble knees made firm. So if you're wobbly as you walk, they'll be made firm so you won't be wobbly. You won't be fearful, but you can be strong and not afraid. Because God is coming on your behalf to take care of all those things that have made you afraid. And now he gets into the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be opened. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the speechless sing for joy. And water shall break forth. There it is. The waters shall break forth. So there will be plenty of water. And he uses that imagery later in the psalm as well. The idea is that this is going to be such a nice thing, such a wonderful place, such a terrific idea that in, we should enjoy it and, and rejoice. Not only will the land be transformed into a field full of wildflowers, we might say, but the people will be transformed from weak to strong, from feeble to firm, from people who are afraid to people who are fearless because God has come and God has intervened on their behalf. And he has come to give the people that have harmed them what they deserve. And he has come to battle evil so that we can rejoice in good. This is the idea that comes in from this poetry. He talks about a highway. A highway was significant because in that part of the world where God's people lived, there was rugged terrain. And if you didn't have a highway, it made traveling more difficult. But here he talks about there will be a highway that will make travel easier. And the redeemed referring God to God's people, they will walk on that highway. There won't be any dangers on that highway from wild beasts, and they will walk on that highway with singing. They will go to Zion. The ransomed will go to Zion with singing. And then it talks again about everlasting joy. We talked about joy already because of this third week of Advent, but here's another idea. And, and you might experiment with this and see if you can do this because this, this is God's description for his people. So why shouldn't it be for you? I was listening to a recording by a man named David Allen. Some of you may recognize that name from the getting things done idea. And I don't know David Allen. I've never met him. I don't know his spiritual perspective. I'm not at all passing judgment on it one way or another. But he had an idea that I thought this is for God's people. And he said every now and then he decides that he's going to be unreasonably joyful. Unreasonably joyful. And I thought, you know, we don't usually think about deciding to be unreasonably joyful, but I guess we could because we do have reason to be unreasonably joyful because joy is a defiant nevertheless. So here it talks about everlasting joy, and then it says they will obtain joy. Obtain joy. Now, we tend to think of that word obtain as something we go after. And if we're going to decide to be unreasonably joyful, then yeah, we would go after that. And I don't see any, any problem with that. That's just deciding to, to rejoice because God has made promises to us and we can rejoice and be glad. But really, part of what's going on in the text there is that very amazing idea that joy will overtake the people here, that joy will overtake you. And so don't resist joy. Maybe joy is trying to overtake you now. But that's the idea from Isaiah, is that 
these people who have been downtrodden will now be overtaken by joy. Joy will just come upon them. And that's a blessing that I would wish for you, that joy would just come upon you, that you would know joy because you know God and you can use that defiant nevertheless. Joy, nevertheless, joy. So that's, that's kind of the big picture of this psalm. Or, well, it's not a psalm. It is a psalm. It's from Isaiah, but it's not from the book of Psalms. It's a poem like the Psalms. Well, there's a little bit more to this that I think in the big picture. So sometimes when we study the Bible, we get into these specific things like this idea that joy will overcome us. And, and, and it's, that's a little different than the idea of obtaining joy. That's kind of a um, really zoom in look at the text. But let's zoom out because if you're new to Bible study, if you're new to the Bible, if you're struggling to understand it, then let's take the 40,000 foot view because you can get a lot of good out of the 40,000 foot view. And here, What's being described, and again, this, this comes from understanding this, some of the scope of the Bible, and you may understand that, and you'll get this immediately. But here, God is describing a down time, a wilderness, dry land, a downtime, where people are weak, and they haven't been strong, they're fearful, but God is about to turn this around. Now, this is a real interesting description of what happened in a big picture sense to the people of God. They took God for granted. They strayed away from God. They, as the Bible describes it, they sinned horribly, and and that led them to a place they never expected or wanted to be. And so along comes a foreign army, and God gives his people to an invading pagan army that captures them and takes them off into exile to Babylon. Terrible time in the history of God's people. Terrible time. Devastating time. They're removed from the land that God promised to them. And they knew God had promised it to them. So they go into exile. Terribly sad. Terribly difficult. But now this portion from Isaiah is describing, even before it happened, what what it'll be like when they come out of exile. Instead of devastation, instead of a wilderness and dry land, there will be a field full of wildflowers. There will be rejoicing. There will be joy everywhere. They'll see the majesty of God, the glory of God. And so they will return from exile. And it talks about a highway, what we call the holy way, this highway, as though it's been prepared and they will walk into the land God had given them. They will come back and they will walk on that land because God has now ransomed or redeemed them from that punishment and they're being restored and there will be joy because they're back where they belong and God has helped them. God has rescued them. God has delivered them, we sometimes say. And so when we look at this passage from Isaiah, we can see it's describing in big terms this transformation of God's people from the punished and the defeated from the exile to the return. In a very similar way, the Bible draws that comparison between our time now and the time when Jesus comes again. Would not be hard for me to paint a bleak picture of these days of how people have forsaken God and forgotten what God said, how people are turning the truth of God into a lie, 
how they're refusing to believe what God says and they want to go their own way and they want everybody to agree with them and to, and to recognize that whatever they say is right and we have to just go along with all of that. It's, 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 a, it's an easy process to describe this as a bleak desert time. But see what the Bible says, and it compares it to this return from exile. But the Bible says that God will one day, one day bring his people, his ransomed, his redeemed people into a whole new era, a whole new time. And that's the anticipation and the joy, the hope, the peace of the coming of Jesus one more time. Now, we sing about these kind of things occasionally, and, and I was noticing this when I was looking at this passage from Isaiah. I said, hey, wait a minute, that sounds real familiar. So I pick up my bound copy of Handel's Messiah given to me by a pastor friend many years ago, and I began to look in here, and I began to say, hmm, do I remember that correctly? And sure enough, it's listed as number 19. And if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you understand this a little bit. If you're not, just listen along. It's fine. But the, but the pieces of music, the sections are numbered. And some of them are long. Some of them are short. There are different styles of music. I'm referring here to recitative. There are arias. There are choruses. This is a recitative for alto. And it comes right out of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The words from Messiah are these, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Now you may recognize that as sounding like the King James Version of the Bible. Well, it does. But I just hear that music in my head, and I read this section from Isaiah, and I go, Wow, that's right. One day, God is going to put things back together the way they were meant to be. See, nobody was ever meant to be blind. Nobody was ever meant to not be able to hear. And God is going to make things like they were always meant to be. And then I noticed another portion in here, and I thought, hmm, haven't I seen? I know I've heard that song. I've probably used that song. I, I don't know where I've got a copy of it. But lo and behold, I looked, and the hymnal that our church uses is on my shelf over there. It has these words, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. That comes right out of Isaiah chapter 35. Maybe you've used that song. It's a little bit older. Some people may not be singing that anymore, but that's right from the scriptures, right from, from the idea in the um, Isaiah 35 passage. And, and it also, in my hymnal, references another passage in Isaiah that, that says the same thing. Now, when you sing that song and when you read this, the passage from Isaiah, you notice it's a reference to Zion. Well, remember, we're supposed to be using our imagination, and, and they, they and we might have thought literally of going back to Jerusalem because that's where they left. But that word Zion is used descriptively to refer to going back home with God, to return to Zion. And sure enough, they were returning to Zion. 
So let's take away from this idea from Isaiah chapter 35 that we can understand, that we need to understand that it's a poem, and it's meant to fire our imaginations, not so that we'll go off into some crazy left-field idea. No, it's got to come out of the text, but the text can be imaginatively visible in our mind's eye, like that field full of wildflowers that I mentioned. We can understand this idea that that joy will overtake us. It won't be something we have to decide we're going to, to implement. It won't be a defiant nevertheless, but one day this joy will just overtake us, and, and we may not even quite understand why we're so joyful. It's just real and true, and it's there for us, and it's our life, and we rejoice because of what God has done. And to be sure, the Isaiah passage talks about how God will take care of those who have have done harm, who have done wrong. It talks about how he will bring judgment to them. It doesn't use that word. It uses fancy words. It says that God will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. You see, when we have been the objects of evil, when we have suffered because of evil, when we've suffered even because we've done wrong, God still wants to come along and forgive and bind up and help us and and put us back together so that we no longer are weak and fearful, but we're strong and confident. We have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And here he's showing us how he's going to be trustworthy. Well, I hope you get a lot out of Isaiah chapter 35. Go back and read it. Read it in whatever translation you like. Soak in that imaginative description. Let your imagination fire off as long as it's consistent with what the text says. Who knows what God might help you understand differently and better. Well, just a moment. We're going to take a break. Take a breath and maybe you can get a cup of coffee or something else depends on what you're doing while you're listening but we're going to come back and talk about this week i've had unbelievable at least to me it was you stay with us i'm pastor rick i'll be right back here on america out loud we emphasize optimal health and air is the most essential element for life the average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com.
the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. staying with us and welcome back to the second part of Faith Is where we challenge each other and exhort each other and build each other up so that we can develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about Isaiah and how Isaiah paints such a vivid picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus makes his return appearance to earth and how we'll have joy overcome us and all of those good things. And and you know, you could add to my joy a little bit if you wouldn't mind, and I, I don't do this often enough, and probably I should do it more often, and I don't want to put a burden on you or presume anything, but if you find these weekly conversations we have, well, I guess one-way conversations, maybe you talk back to me in ways I don't know, well, that's okay, go ahead, but if you find this program helpful, would you be so kind as to recommend it to a friend, whether they listen to it as is broadcast here on the radio or if they want to go and pick it up as a podcast, they can find it. It's out there everywhere. You can go to the, the website and find that where you can see America Out Loud, other programs. But if you'd be so kind, if you find it helpful to encourage someone else, just pick out a program that you liked and say, hey, give this a listen. I think it might help you. And maybe this idea of joy this week would help somebody, especially during the, the craziness of this season. Don't let the craziness get you down, okay? Well... As I mentioned earlier, I had, I had quite an experience earlier this week. It was about two weeks ago that I got a phone call. I had missed an earlier message. I was just busy and, and I did not see, I saw the message, but I did not realize the importance of it. And I got a phone call from a friend who said, did you see? And I said, no, I didn't. But it was an invitation that I had missed that he was catching me up on to go to Washington, D.C. with the Alliance Defending Freedom Ambassadors and to be a part of a prayer event to support an absolutely critical case before the United States Supreme Court. And I didn't have to think too long about it. I thought, well, this is a pretty bad time of the year, a lot of things going on, but I also realized because of the way the schedule worked, I'd need to miss a Sunday, and I wasn't sure if I should do that. I knew it was a great and important opportunity. I knew it would mean so much to the people of, of God if, if we can intervene and, and if we can encourage and build up the people involved in this because we absolutely must, must have a decision and opinion on this case that supports free speech and all of the religious liberty associated uh, aspects of that. And so I sent an email out that same evening to the leaders of our church and I explained the opportunity to them and asked them, you know, how did they feel about me being away? I mean, Advent's a big deal. It's an important season. And and almost immediately, the, the responses came back. Yes, we think you should go. Of course. Go. Represent us. It's important to do that. And, and I tell you, to have a church that's that supportive, to extend our ministry beyond ourselves, I mean, that that's just huge. Not many churches get these kinds of opportunities. 
But we, all churches, your church, you, need to put yourself in places where, where God can use you in special ways. And, and I'd be delighted if you had those kinds of opportunities. And I said to our church, I, I'm looking forward to the time when some of our people have similar opportunities to what I've had. And we've seen a little bit of that, not nearly as much as I'd like to see. But then again, I always want to see more. You know how that goes. But anyway, the Alliance Defending Freedom invited me to Washington, D.C. to participate in this prayer event in support of the Supreme Court case called 303 Creative. That's the shorthand version. It's 303 Creative versus actually the state of Colorado. There's a name that's in there, but it's really against the state of Colorado. And it has to do with free speech. It's very simple. A young lady named Lori Smith is an artist, graphic designer. She wanted to design websites for couples who were planning to get married. And her vision of that as an artist is to create unique websites that communicate their story and the heart of their commitment to one another as husband and wife in a way that's special and that really really tells the fullness of their, of their story. And it does it in a creative, artistic way. Well, in Colorado, there have been some real challenges to free speech. You may remember a man named Jack Phillips who had a masterpiece cake shop. And so he was sued because he wouldn't make a cake celebrating a same-sex marriage. State of Colorado, using their anti-discrimination laws, sued him. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Jack Phillips won. And they had to back down, but they have come against him again. That's a little different story. We'll stick to the main story here. Last summer, I was privileged to hear Lori Smith speak about her case, 303 Creative, and some of the challenges that went on. And I'm telling you, I, I won't recount all of them here, but the, but the absolute viciousness of the enemies of free speech, the enemies of Christ, really, displayed toward her and her family were just stunning. She began to get emails with all kinds of vile threats. It got so bad that the Alliance Defending Freedom legal team stepped in and they they tasked one of their team members with screening her emails so she didn't have to see all the vile stuff that was being sent her way. It's just unbelievable what she and her family have endured. She has a young daughter. Her husband was there with her. And so I was invited to, to go, and, and I just want to tell you a little bit about what happened during that time. I could probably tell you more than you want to know, and, and <laughs> truth be told, maybe I will. You, as we're going along, going along here, you may stop and say, now, hold on, I don't really need to know all this, but, but um, it's, it's so critically important that, that I, I just think it's, it's helpful for us to share this. And, and the, the sense that God was with us was so palpable in, in so many ways that, that I just want you to have a sense to give you a little more hope that God is really with us and that he really helps us. And, and our prayer, as we continue to pray for this case, is that the Supreme Court will issue a decisive opinion that will support free speech and help preserve religious liberty across the country. So Sunday afternoon was the first event that they had planned for us, and it was a prayer walk around the Supreme Court building. For reasons I didn't quite understand, they didn't want us as a group to go. There were about 20 of us. They didn't want all of us to go and be a group there at the Supreme Court building that Sunday afternoon. So they sent us up there in groups of two or three. And I went with another couple to, they said, just walk around like you're there visiting the place and, and uh, pray. And so we did. 
we arrived at the end of the block with the uh, driver dropped us off and we walked just a, about a half a block to the Supreme Court building I don't know if you've been to that place in Washington DC it's a it's a it's an immensely impressive building just across the street is the back side of the United States Capitol building and if you haven't seen it uh, go on the web and find some pictures and, and it's just really quite impressive well, we got there to the corner and we didn't quite know what to do, but we decided, well, we'll just plunge in. So we started walking around the building. We didn't know if we could get all the way around. We didn't know where, where there were places that were off limits. It became apparent what was, what was restricted as we walked. It was pretty easy to tell that. There weren't too many people out. It was kind of a brisk afternoon, but sun was shining. It wasn't cold and uncomfortable. Uh, we dressed for it. We were prepared and we did just fine. We walked around the building. We actually, because we, of where we were dropped off, we got to the, to the edge of the, of the building and we decided to walk around in a counterclockwise, through, or no, wait a minute, we went clockwise, that's right. We went clockwise. We debated which way to go. We went clockwise around the building from there. And, and it was just remarkable. And this was true all through, the, all through the couple of days I was there. I was there, left Tuesday afternoon, got back home in the early hours of Wednesday. So it was kind of a long day Tuesday. But anyway, we started around and we began to pray. And as we were thinking about walking around, it occurred to me immediately, and I, sometimes I think these are silly things that will occur to us, but then I thought later that, that you know, maybe it's God that puts us in our, puts us in our mind, in our heart to, to, to make these connections. But I, I began to pray and to think about how this was like walking around the walls of Jericho. And God brought those walls down decisively. And so I prayed that the Lord would bring down the walls that would restrict people's free speech, that he would bring down the walls of the enemies that are trying to, to stop Christianity and Christians by using this device, this legal device of an, supposed anti-discrimination. We walked around there. We prayed for other things. So as we walked and, and my friends that I just met prayed, it was just apparent that God was leading us. And I remember thinking as we walked, and I, I don't know if I've made this connection quite the same way before, but again, I think God gives us these opportunities and we make these connections at just the right time. But I was reminded that I had recently read in the scriptures about how God connects this idea of justice and righteousness. And so I prayed and we prayed that, that God would bring justice to bear on this case and, and not because of our righteousness, but because of his righteousness, not because of any good in us, but because he is a righteous judge, and we could depend upon him to do that. And so other prayers, we walked around the building, we got past the side of the building, and then went across the back side of the building, still remarkable structure all around. The, the rear of the building, the sidewalk is actually quite close to the building, you can see it very well. And we had just about gotten to the end of the building where we would have turned then and gone back toward the front when we heard, yep, you're right, we heard it, we heard singing. Yes, even more, we heard Christmas carolers there in the heart of Washington, D.C. And, and I just want you to know it was so refreshing to hear them singing, Star of Wonder, Star of Night. Well, referring to the Bethlehem Star, of course, and to look back, I don't know how we missed them. I don't know if they were just walking up, but all of a sudden it was as though they materialized without us seeing them. And here was this group of maybe a dozen, I didn't count them, carolers standing on the corner back at, at probably half a block or so away from us, but we could hear the singing. And it was so wonderful to hear that in that setting and to realize that, that God is everywhere and there are people of God in all places. 
ready to honor him. Well, we kept walking around and praying that the court would do the right thing, that the walls of deception would fall down. There are many references around the court uh, about justice, references to justice etched in the, the building above the, the, the um, doors and other decorative things in the building. And it remind me that, that truth matters, justice matters, and God cares about all of that. We got around to the front of the building and there was a lineup of people on the sidewalk playing games and, and really dressed for the weather. And, and we found out later for sure, I thought at first that we must be so, but then I wasn't certain. But later we found out they were lined up in the hopes of being able to get in the next morning to hear the oral arguments in the 303 creative case. And some of them would have because they were right at the beginning of the line, but they were prepared to spend all night outside just to get in to hear what's going on. Well, we continued to pray. We circled the building, got back to our starting point. And as I stood there and looked back at the Supreme Court building and then down the street, I could see just the top of, of the building next door. And I said to someone, if I remember correctly, that's the Library of Congress. I'd been by there. We didn't take time to walk down that way this time. We were there for a different purpose. And I, and I couldn't help thinking. And, and it's, it's just, it's amazing what God helps you think sometimes. But here's the Library of Congress with so many books I mean, thousands of volumes of books. And I said to the people there, he said, you know, they've got a lot of books down there in the Library of Congress, but I've got a book, one book, that gives me all that I need to know for life today and life forever. And of course, you know, they knew I was referring to the Bible. And that's true for you and for me. We need to hold on to the Bible and, and reverence it and, and read it. We really only need one. And I have one contains all the wisdom we need. You have it too. Well, that evening there was a dinner at the Alliance Defending Freedom offices there in Washington, D.C., and they went over some of the details of the next day. I really didn't know till I got there what we would be doing. I don't think they were being deliberately, um, how should I say, evasive, or they weren't trying to keep anything from me. It's just kind of the way the things unfolded. Maybe they assumed I knew. But we had a, we had a meeting that really turned into a, to a church service where we prayed that God would be with Lori and the legal team and all the people that were there. There were, there were a lot of people in the room. You may recognize, I mentioned earlier, Jack Phillips. He'd be, he's one of their clients. Baron L. Saltzman, who had, who had been a client some years before. A couple of others that had been clients because they had had the government come after them for their freedom of religion, their, their free speech, their freedom of conscience, you might say. And it just happened, I don't know how it happened, but the table that I was sitting at was right next to the table where Lori Smith and her family were seated. And she was there with her husband and her young daughter and her extended family. And it was so, I mean, you got the feeling you were in the presence of heroes. None of these people, Jack, Baronel, none of them would have said that they're heroes. They are just people like us. And, and when you meet them and see them, they, they're just genuine people. Uh, but they are they are made of something inside that allows them to stand up in the face of this. I couldn't help but think of the challenges in the book of Daniel and the three men who had to stand up before the idol and then were taken to the king and, and they said, we're not going to worship your idol. In a very real sense, that's what Lori and Jack and Baronel and Blaine and these others have said to the United States government or to their state governments. We are not going to do that. That violates our conscience. And it was just, it's just an amazing sense. 
Well, they gave us all the briefings we needed and the media security about signs and how we should behave and all those kinds of things. And, and Lori and her family were resolute in the things that were shared, that they were giving all the credit to God. And, and we stood and we had a time of singing and honoring God, a time of prayer. And it was, it was clear that God's presence was there and with us. And, and Lori and these other people, they, they regularly give credit to God. They don't think it's their, their doing at all. At the same time, we need to thank God for their resolve, that they're willing to do it. They've been through terrible things that we will never know. And yet she's as humble. She's simply a person allowing God to use her so that his kingdom can come and his will be done. Her husband was there. Uh, I spoke to him after the, the service was over and thanked him for standing with her. And it, it was just, you, you, it's hard to describe. I guess you can tell I'm having trouble describing it. But it's just kind of the, the, um, the sense that you're there at something so vitally important, standing with people just like us. And there but by the grace of God, it could be one of us having to stand up. But they were standing and they were resolute. Well, the next morning we had breakfast at the hotel before we started out. And then following the breakfast, we had a prayer meeting. And I tell you again, and again, I don't exactly know how to describe it, but it was as though God was giving special insight to the various people that led us in prayer. And I, I sat there and, and I listened and I, I just was so thankful for what God is doing. One of the people prayed that, that the language of the people opposing free speech would be confused and that they would have trouble expressing their, their arguments and that they wouldn't be understood, but that there would be clarity on the part of Lori's lawyers, uh, Kristen Wagner was, was the lawyer that was going to speak on Lori's behalf. And, and I thought that's so insightful because that's what God did at the Tower of Babel. When people put themselves up against God, they stood, they were confused. Their language was confused and they couldn't communicate. Another person, nobody asked her to do this. Nobody suggested it, but she began reading one of the Psalms as a prayer and it was so fitting. Uh, it just it just was exactly right and, and other people prayed and and it was all just you had this sense of of God giving us the words that we needed to give to him by way of praying for for the people that were involved that day well we got on a bus and rode down from the hotel not too far to the Supreme Court building again where the Alliance defending freedom had planned a rally and we were planning for that and and so we stepped up and they had signs and balloons and things so that we could identify ourselves as supporting 303 Creative and the idea of free speech. And they had many, many speakers supporting free speech. It was really remarvelous. But the thing that, that I did not expect and that they did not prepare us for, and I don't think anybody really knew it would be this, this intense, but there were protesters there disagreeing and opposing free speech, opposing Lori's right to speak freely. And they made every attempt to drown out the speakers at our rally. I mean, they were they were beyond rude. If you had seen their behavior, you would not begin to, to approve of it. They had bullhorns that they could shout obscenities, and they said the most vile things repeatedly over the bullhorns. The bullhorns would also play sirens. And when you go to Washington, D.C., you hear a lot of sirens. 
but this was continuous sirens from them right behind people's heads, right in their ears, in every attempt to drown out and to, and to force us to not be present and listen and to disrupt the whole idea. They had cowbells that they were continually banging, and one person had a whistle, and she'd blow that whistle repeatedly. They made every effort to force their way into our crowd from the peripheral, per the periphery of the rally, and and leaned against us and pushed back. and And there was one man that was the most aggressive, and he tried to push his way through and would have knocked some of us down if we hadn't seen him coming and been prepared for that. Well, that lasted for about four hours, maybe four and a half. I wish I'd kept track of the time and. Finally, the, the arguments ended two and a half hours later, and they came out and came down the Supreme Court steps. We could see them walking down. They went over to a press conference, and they came over and, and spoke to us, both Lori and her attorney, Kristen Wagner. And again, it was so encouraging to hear them and to see them. We walked from there to the Heritage Foundation where we enjoyed a lunch and a brief program where they talked about the oral arguments and what had happened at the court. We went back to the hotel, and, and later that night, we had a dinner at a restaurant down the street from Washington. We walked down to the restaurant, actually, and one of the senior attorneys for ADF, for the Alliance Defending Freedom, was there, and he talked to us about what happened at the court and, and a lot of other things. He was very insightful. And the um, thing that I really, a couple of things I really got out of uh, about his talking to us, one is he was he was very quick to say, as a result of the of the hearing that morning, the oral arguments that morning, he said it's going to be a six to three decision in our favor. He said maybe seven to two. Well, I thought that was pretty bold to make that kind of prediction, but he's been around a long time and he understands the court and I trusted his description. But that's very heartening to think that that he was that confident of that. And he really encouraged all of us. He, he understands the environment. He's been out there uh, debating the the other side at, at law schools around, around the country. But he was very encouraging that, that, hey, we need to speak up and engage people, and God can help us, and we can help people if we'll do that. We walked back to the hotel in the dark streets of Washington, but they were well lit. It wasn't, it wasn't a threat. There was no sense of danger, even though it was about 8.30 at night. There were other people out on the street. It's quite interesting for me, who haven't been in a big city much in my life, to, to do that. Tuesday morning was our last day there, and we got up and had our breakfast and meeting time, which, which was quite brief. And then we went over to the Alliance Defending Freedom offices again, where we learned some more about their work and saw some more of the office space there. And then we had the opportunity to divide up into groups and pray for some people who had requested our prayers. And that was also very encouraging. And, and you know, you, you go, go to those kind of things, and you th- don't really know how you can make a difference because I'm not a lawyer. We're not involved in that. But to have the opportunity to sit in one of the offices and hear one of the young ladies pour out her story of, of some of the things she's been through in the last few years and then to be able to try to give her words of encouragement and and um, guidance, uh, admonition, What I don't, I don't know exactly what we said to her that might be helpful, but to try to give her some, some support and um, point her in the direction of uh, that God – will continue his healing. And, and she talked about how God had already done that. So if you if you happen to think about it, you might pray for that young lady and ask the Lord to continue what he started in her life. It was very encouraging to hear her testimony of what God is doing. And yet it's obvious that she has continuing challenges because life can be hard sometimes. And, and it might be hard for you, but there's hope for you as well because God can meet your challenges as well, same as hers. 
Well, we had prayer with another person and discovered that amongst ourselves some reasons to pray for each other. And we just trusted and trusted the whole thing to, to God and to his care. And there's much more I could probably say about the time up there. I, I don't want to, I don't, don't want to overdo it. I guess if, if I have, I have already, and, and you'll understand that. But I, but I want to impress upon us how wonderful it is when we have the opportunity to engage, as it were, on the front line. You know, we were there in front of the Supreme Court, and and we said to ourselves, you know, if the Satanists are here opposing us, we must be doing the right thing. And they were there. Satanists were there. One young man held a sign that said. The future is satanic. And I thank the living God that the future is not satanic. There is no future for that young man as long as he travels that path. And you might pray for him. But I thank God that he is intervening for his people. And he is going to be with us. And we can trust him. And especially during this Advent season as we anticipate the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And as we remind ourselves that one day God is going to come back. And the desert will bloom with wildflowers. And we'll walk the highway into the city of God. That God is putting everything together. And God is simply delaying so that more and more people can come to know him. So step up, step out, speak up, speak out. Do your part to represent God. Do your part to say a good word for Jesus and invite people to have faith. Because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And no matter what, we can trust him. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens.